You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, guys. Welcome to Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafidi. I've got my co-host Eurosimos with me as always, and the incredible Dr. Melissa Sell is returning for the third time, and this time we're diving deep into the real truth about cancer. Not the truth about cancer, the real truth about cancer. So put your thinking hats on for this episode because this is mind-blowing. Um, you know, there's so much fear around that word cancer. So we really want to begin to get and strike at the roots um, of what that actually means and what it actually means for your biology. Um, so if you receive value from this episode, please share it with those who also might find this of interest too. Before we get into that, round four. Can't believe we're on round four already of our yeah. eight-week group coaching program, Rise Above the Herd, is taking off November 29. Spots are filling up already. Um, incredible transformations taking place within our group coaching program. So if that's something that you're interested in, in developing authentic self-esteem, in truly living life on your terms and feeling empowered and self-reliant as a truth seeker, then you can head to riseabovetheherd.co and we would love to meet you and for you to join us for our next eight-week journey. Also, one more note, Dr. Melissa Sell is our guest expert this month in our private membership community, Friends of the Truth. If you're interested in applying to join our community, um, you can head to friendsofthetruth.co. So much love for you all. Enjoy this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 95 of Here for the Truth. We have the phenomenal Dr. Melissa Sell back with us once again. Many of our long-time, long-time listeners should be very familiar with her work. And today, again, will be the basis of this conversation, obviously, will be German New Medicine, Germanic healing knowledge. Those two terms mean the same thing in art, interchangeable, except the focus today is going to be strictly around cancer. So, Dr. Mel, the floor is yours. All right. Yeah. So today we wanted to give a little overview really of the Germanic healing knowledge, Dr. Homer's discovery, the five biological laws when it comes to, you know, what most people consider the scariest possible diagnosis. And through Dr. Homer's personal story of the tragedy of losing his son and then subsequently developing testicular cancer, he has developed and recognized this system for understanding why the body builds cancer. You know, so what do most people think is the cause of cancer? You guys. Uh, bad food, you know, radiation, things like that. What else? Stress. Uh, yeah, stress. The sun. Oh, the sun. sun yeah. Um, There's a lot of guesses about what is the cause of cancer, um, but none of them are 100% of the time accurate. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at what is scientific? What, why does the body? So the conventional world sees cancer as abnormal cells. The body is doing something wrong. Something's gotten screwed up, whether yep. it's because of genes or some type of infection. Sometimes they think that infections and uh, viruses and bacteria can cause cancer. They think that, you know, nutrition or chemicals, there's a lot, a lot of different guesses, but there is not a consistent, understandable, reliable system in the conventional world or alternative world for understanding what cancer actually is, which is why this work 
is so important and why I'm so excited that you guys are so enthusiastic about having me on to talk about it because this is something that's so fundamental to to life, to fearing disease. The idea that because cancer's in the family, it's just genetic. People in my family had it, so I um, am predisposed to developing this disease. And you live with kind of this looming fear of a lump, of a bump, of you know something going on in your body, and it's like it could strike at any time. So it's scary and it's looming. And when you understand this system, that fear is completely gone. When you understand that the body and every organ within the body has a function and a purpose. And if there's something odd going on, if there's something that appears abnormal, we have to zoom in and look at it from the perspective of the biology and say, okay, this is this is an organ in the body. Every organ in the body serves a function and a purpose. Where is this tissue change and what is the purpose of this tissue? So for example, in Dr. Hammer's story, he had a tragic loss of his son. And he went on to develop testicular cancer, you know? So we have to ask the testicles, what do they do? And that that's that big aha moment that he had where he's connecting these dots, you know, not just stress and cancer, not just, and this is the, you know, the stress adaptation model um, by Hans Selyer, where he talked about, you know, the breakdown. So when you're stressed out, and this is what I used to believe prior to coming across this body of work is that, so when you're stressed out, your body breaks down. And so you are no longer able to adapt to your environment. There's a breakdown of your immune system. And the whole idea is that the immune system keeps these cancer cells in check. And that's what I used to teach people is like, oh, we have cancer cells all the time in the body, but the immune system keeps it in check, which is why we have to eat healthy, why we have to lower our stress and do all the healthy lifestyle things um, in order to prevent this breakdown which leads to then, you know, this uncontrolled cellular replication that we're calling cancer. Mm-hmm. But this is different. This is, and Dr. Hammer, you know, so he says, okay, I had a stressful event, a shock, a loss, and I developed this cancer. There's some kind of link here. Then he had the opportunity to study um, cancer patients and to see, you know, what's going on here. Test the theory. Is there a relationship between shocking trauma and cancer? And so he started to see a pattern emerge that. For those that had testicular cancer, they had a specific thing in their life, a loss. Uh, Those that had lung cancer had a specific experience of a death fright. Those that had breast cancer had a worry. And so he said, okay, so this isn't just stress breaking down um, the body's ability to fight something off and then you succumb to a disease. There is a rhyme and a reason to why the body is adapting in specifically the way that it is. So loss of offspring, the body reinforces the testicle, making the testicle more robust and better able to what? Reproduce that which was lost. So the breast gland, what does the breast gland do? It produces milk for the offspring, for the loved one, for the the one that you're worried about. So when you're profoundly worried, the breast gland increases in size. When you are afraid for your life, there's additional cells in your um, lung alveoli so that you can absorb more oxygen. So it's meaningful. This isn't a mistake. This isn't an error. This isn't something that's just the result of randomness or breakdown. It is intelligent adaptation. And so when we start looking at 
dis-ease through the lens of intelligent adaptation, we do different things. We don't treat it. We, you know, we don't go to war with the body. We don't go to war with these tissues. We understand the individual and what they went through in order for these tissue adaptations to manifest, you know? And so uh, when I first came across this, it was so mind-blowing for me because, you know, I had experiences in my life of people who I thought were so healthy. So they're doing all of the healthy things. They exercise and they eat right and they take care of their nervous system and they, you know, do lower, you know, try to lower their stress, kind of all of the classic things, try to get enough sleep. Yet they would have a diagnosis out of nowhere that happened recently to someone that I know is healthy in this same way. And a diagnosis came of leukemia. And it's like, whoa, wow, what a shock. Um, here's a person who, you know, is doing, quote, all the right things. You're doing all the right things. And then you get this diagnosis. That for me was really unsettling. That would, that it got me to that point of just kind of like almost questioning your religion <laughs> where you're like, whoa, this is what I believe. This is what I preach. This is what I'm saying is what will prevent disease from forming in the body yet it happens. And so when things like that happen, it's very, you know, disconcerting, unsettling, but when you understand this map, when you understand why the body does what it does um, and why I'm in the costume that I'm in today. So we want to talk a little more maybe about the leukemia program to understand how could a perfectly healthy person who is eating all the right foods develop something like leukemia. And so we have to look at, you know, what, what is leukemia? Where does all of this take place? And so um, another thing that Dr. Hammer discovered, kind of going back to the biological laws, and you know, you can refresh on all the specifics of that in the prior episodes. But the the second biological law, the law of two phases. And so, um, in conventional medicine, they see that there are you know 500 hot diseases, 500 cold diseases. But Dr. Hammer discovered actually there are two phases to every disease. There is the conflict active phase, and then there is the healing phase. And so um, what is leukemia? You know, leukemia is too many white blood cells um, in the bloodstream. And this is seen as a disease. It's seen as, you know, you've got all of these immature blood cells and it is a problem and you're really fatigued and you can't get out of the, you know, can't get out of bed. You're just absolutely, you have got no energy at all. So the conventional world says, this is a problem. This is a big problem that's happening in the body. But when you understand the biological program, you view something like leukemia completely differently. So the conflict, so we have to look at the blood and where the blood is made. So the blood is made inside of bone and bone tissue is, uh, belongs to the group of new mesodermal cells. And so when you are looking at the breakdown, the third biological law of all of the organs in the body, all of our organs are made out of one of three, functionally four different layers of germ embryologic tissue. And so that germ tissue tells us how the, how the tissue is going to behave during conflict versus during healing. And so this is the new mesodermal tissue controlled from the cerebral medulla or the cerebral white matter. It belongs to this orange group. So it's the newer of the orange group. And so what happens is during the conflict, so when we have a conflict shock that affects our self-value, which is really, you know, uh, I know a big theme of what you guys talk about, self-esteem, self-value. Um, when we have a shock, a self-esteem shock, where we 
feel not good enough, when we feel like unable to perform, unable to you know, provide for our family, when there's a shock of, I'm not good enough, there's something profoundly wrong with me. Yeah. Um, and now it has to be a severe shock to affect the bones. So with the connective tissue, there are different layers. And so a more superficial self-devaluation type of shock will affect um, the, the blood vessels. More moderate will affect the muscle or the lymphatic system, but the most severe and we know this in our language and paying attention to language um, can reveal a lot about our biological conflicts. I wanted to bite his head off. I can't stomach that. You know, I felt it to my marrow. I felt it to my core. I felt it in my bones. Mm. And so when we feel something in our bones, this, this shock of self-devaluation, what happens is we have a conflict. And so remember the conflict shock, that's the DHS, the Dirk Hammer syndrome, the thing that caught us off guard. We weren't prepared for it. We felt totally isolated, alone in the moment. Um, and it was dramatic for us. So there is a impact in the brain, in the cerebral medulla. And then on the organ level, we start losing tissue in our bones. There's erosion, there's breakdown, there's loss. And so, um, the blood, which is being produced in the bone marrow, we start producing less blood, less uh, red blood cells, less white blood cells. So we have anemia and leukopenia. So we have less blood in our system. So that means less oxygen carrying capacity because um, that's what the red blood cells do is when the oxygen comes in, we breathe it in and it hops a ride on the red blood cells attaching to the hemoglobin. And then it goes around the body um, to energize us, to, to give us the, what we need in order to survive. And when we don't have as many of these guys in the blood, when we have fewer red blood cells, um, we start getting weak, start getting fatigued, we're tired, we're low energy. Not to mention the fact that you're also preoccupied in dealing with this loss of your value. So remember, during the conflict active phase, you're, you have obsessive thinking. You're thinking about how you're not enough. You're wondering, how am I going to become enough? How am I going to fix this problem? How am I going to build back whatever I need to, to do in order to you know um, restore my self-value? Um, and so your hands are going to be cold. Your appetite is lower. You may notice that you're losing weight. That's all uh, symptoms of the conflict active phase. And all along, we're losing tissue in the bones um, causing us to lower. So um, again, so the, that two phases in conventional medicine, they see leukemia and anemia as two different diseases, two entirely separate processes. Um, but what Dr. Homer discovered, it's one process that during the conflict, we have the anemia or the leukopenia. So the lowered um, uh, blood cells. And then when we resolve the conflict, so Something has to happen in order to shift gears. And this is where, you know, people are like, well, how do you resolve a conflict? You know, how do you restore your self-value? Maybe you need to, you know, take a look at the, the next round of your course to, to help you to find things. And that's the thing is we want to instill in, in our children, most especially, you know, that sense of self-worth and self-value. Where does value come from? Does it come from the outside? Does it come from, you know, people telling you that you did a good job? Are you at the whim of, other people and their opinions of you about whether your self-esteem is high or low. Um, you know, we can get into a lot of philosophical conversation around, you know, what it's like to resolve a self-devaluation conflict. But ultimately for our biology, it just wants to know, am I strong now? Am I, am I good? Do we resolve that problem? And once we do, the body shifts gears. 
So now remember, we had been losing all of our blood cells, all of this, uh, you know, precious blood tissue was not producing. Once we resolve the conflict, the body starts to ramp up blood cell production, but it starts with the white blood cells. And so we start with these white blood cells and you get a, you get a blood test because they're like, you know, you're feeling fatigued and exhausted and it, it looks like there's something wrong with you. And so you go in and you get checked out and they test your blood and they say, we have bad news. You have leukemia. And so now you're what shocked again. Now you're like, oh no, there's something wrong with me. But if you know, and I'm for everyone listening, now you know that leukemia is, is a positive shift. It means that you did resolve your self-devaluation conflict. It's actually a reason for celebration. And so that's one of those profound, how you look at this means everything. You know, So if someone receives a leukemia diagnosis, how you respond to that diagnosis determines whether you're like, okay, good, I'm in the clear, my body's healing, I'm gonna rest up, I'm gonna give my body what it needs, I'm going to you know, maintain this resolution and not you know, trigger and track back to the original conflict? Or are you going to feel devastated, traumatized mm. by this scary diagnosis and, you know, what you're going to do next? And so that's what's happening in this program. It is a two-phase system. It's a direct response to an impact that the individual experienced and the adaptation. So the whole purpose of it is to make you stronger. If you successfully resolve the conflict, so it's either to take you out of the game or to um, reward you for resolution is kind of how this works. Because if you persist in the self-devaluation, you know, and think of this, you know, in, in wild, in nature, if you are feeling that you, you know, aren't providing value, I'm worthless. You know, when you think about pack animals, it's like, okay, if, if a part of the pack is feeling worthless, it's like, okay, well, you're either going to get taken out of the game or you're going to resolve your conflict and you're going to be stronger. That's the purpose of the self-devaluation conflicts are actually called uh, the new mesodermal tissues. It's considered the luxury group, Dr. Hammer called it. And so the luxury group means if you resolve this conflict, you will be stronger than before. This is actually the same program, um, the new mesodermal tissue for the ovaries and the testicles. When you resolve that loss conflict, your ovaries are more robust and your testicles are more robust. You're better able to procreate. You're more manly, more womanly. Um, and so that it's a reward for resolving the conflict biologically. And so again, it's good news. It's a positive sign that you've resolved a conflict and that your tissues are in that regeneration mode. Um, so yeah, where, where do you guys want to go next? Imagine like, you know, walking into a doctor's office, getting a leukemia diagnosis and be like, fuck yes. <laughs> Yeah. No, but this is, there's a reason why our last episode with you, we called it the ultimate red pill. And I keep referring it to that because this is a complete paradigm shift, you know, a complete uh, new way, even though it's been around for 40 years or so of understanding our real biology. You know, this is why also like, I totally want to call this episode, the real truth about cancer. Cause you know, a lot of people, and there was a docuseries a while ago called the truth about cancer, but it's, they're still following older, you know, older paradigms around even in the holistic world so it's just it's it blows my mind that if an individual go decides to go to see a doctor at a certain point for whatever it is maybe it's just my yearly checkup that i go in you know i'm going to go for my yearly checkup and it's just showing that snapshot of of what's going on in your body like if you've resolved the conflict or if you're in conflict activity because correct me if i'm wrong depending on the tissue um 
you can get diagnosed with cancer in conflict activity, or you can get diagnosed with cancer in the healing phase as well. Is that true? Yes. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that'll take us, you know, that's the, the third biological law again, when we're looking at the different tissue types. And so when we're looking at the old tissues, so that's the yellow group and the old orange, those tissues enhance during the conflict. So there's cellular proliferation. So that's where we're going to get the thyroid gland tumor, really any gland that has an adenocarcinoma is what it's called. And so that is the, uh, the glandular tissue is growing in size. And so that we're adding additional cells. And what's the purpose of that? So we can produce more of whatever that gland does. So, you know, if it produces saliva, we increase the cells to produce more saliva, more digestive juices, more um, thyroid to speed up the metabolism, to hurry up um, because we're feeling too slow. And so depending on the nature of the conflict, what is it exactly that happened? How our psyche perceived it? You know, and again, this goes beyond our consciousness. It's not like I was thinking I'm slow and that turned the program on. I had a shock, something, my, my system, my biology, my, um, my, the adaptive wisdom within me registered it before I even had words to describe what happened to me. My body was on the job and said, okay, more thyroid hormone. That's what we need stat. <laughs> and so it turns the program on, it activates the, um, the brainstem and the tissue proliferation begins. And so the, those are examples of tissues that grow during the conflict. Then when the conflict is resolved, we have our microsurgeons. You know, so our bacteria are not foes, they are friends. They are our seasonal workers, our helpers that turn on and then decompose when we no longer need that tissue. So that's the type of cancer that would be found during the conflict active phase um, when there's a growth. Now, often it isn't found until the healing phase because unless the conflict persisted for a really long time, um, you know, depending on yeah, the intensity and duration, if something's growing, 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 you're going to find out about it eventually. Either you're going to feel something or you're going to go in and have some scan done and they're going to say, oh, there's a, you know, there's a lump here. There is a tumor. And, and so you can find that either during the conflict or once it's already in the decomposition phase where the body is trying to break it down um, using the, the tubercular bacteria. Now, the other example, really, it's kind of hard to even call it a cancer because it is a healing restoration. And so this is going to be for, you know, the ducts and then also the bones. So we've got that loss of tissue during the conflict active phase for the bone. We lose the tissue for the the connective tissues. We lose tissue during the conflict active phase for the ectodermal tissues. We lose tissue, say in the lining of a duct. So this is the ectodermal squamous epithelial tissues that line the ducts. So these are the passageways. So you have like the bile duct, for example. And so if we need more, um, we need a wider highway for the bile because you had a territorial anger conflict or an identity conflict, we widen that space. Um, And then during the healing phase, there's tissue restoration. So we're just filling in tissue. Same thing with the breast duct. So a ductal cancer um, is a cancer that forms once the body's already in healing. So really, again, we're looking at this as good news because we had a conflict, that conflict was resolved, and now the tissue is simply refilling. And understanding it in this way um, will, because it really like with the the number one cancer, because I looked this up before <laughs> our, our meeting today, is, is lung cancer. You know, so, so lung and bronchial cancers are the, the number one um, 
uh, deadliest cancer uh, that people experience. But we have to look at the the impact of the diagnosis shock. That's the purpose of of this, you know, to to get you to to that place where you're so curious about how the like a diagnosis impacts someone. I'm so curious about what's going on in my body that I'm, you know, if you get are given a diagnosis by a person in a white coat by UC as an authority, that just inherently, if you've never questioned this before, is going to strike you in a certain way. It's going to hit you in a certain way. And for most people, the C word, the word cancer equals death. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's that death fright shock. That's the thing that leads to so many lung cancers. It's yeah, not, yep, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that I wanted to lead into that because you hear this term metastasis all the time as well, that the cancer spread to the lungs because they obviously got diagnosed with something in the first place, but because of the secondary shock, uh, the death fright conflict, then they get diagnosed with lung cancer and then they're told that they, you know, it spread to the lungs when in fact, that's never been proven, right? So- Sorry, are you saying that so the leading cause of cancer deaths is cancer diagnoses? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I I personally believe that that's true. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, we have to look at all the people that are getting diagnosed each year and all of the testing that's done and all of the, even just the, oh, we think there might be something wrong. Yeah, like even that can impact someone of, oh, we're, we're we, this little, this test was a little questionable. So just getting you in that frame of there's, there could be something profoundly wrong with me from self-devaluation. So like you mentioned with the the theory of metastasis, I never questioned that before. It's like, oh, well, it makes sense. So here's a scary thing in the body. And Apparently, it can spread all over the place. But Dr. Hammer found that, one, there's no evidence of this traveling, of of the cancer moving from point A to point B. They've never seen it in transit. They don't test donated blood for cancer. They've never seen a cancer cell traveling through the lymphatic system or the blood system, which is how it would have to get there if it's traveling. I mean, how else is something in the breast going to get into the bones? But the, you know, not... Uh, taking into account the impact of, you know, the, the diagnosis itself. So if you have a breast adaptation um, and then you feel as though there's something wrong with me here, there's a wrongness taking place here. So that is that self-devaluation. And so they say, oh, now the cancer is spread to the lymph. Now it's spread to the bone. Um, when in reality, what's happened is you had a shock of feeling a loss of value in this area. You know, another uh, common metastasis site is the liver, you know, so a starvation conflict, you know, often people will go on extremely restrictive diets um, when they get a a cancer diagnosis, because they think that um, and the old me would have certainly if one of my family members, you know, got diagnosed with cancer, I'd say, okay, immediately, let's change all of your diet. You're not allowed to eat anything you like anymore. You're going to eat these things. And someone very easily can experience a starvation conflict leading to adaptations in the liver. Um, also a financial shock. So a starvation conflict could also be, how am I going to afford all of this? How am I going to afford, you know, when they give you the treatment plan um, that they yeah. want to give you and you look at the number. And you're like, how am I going to do that? I can't afford to do that. My family will starve. I'm going to, you know, how are we going to pay for food and this treatment? And so, um, yeah, when we're looking at the different sites that cancer tends to, quote, spread to, what is that organ's function? What type of shock did that person experience in addition to whatever their original conflict is? And once you're in that spiral, you know, and this is why 
you know, one of my mentors says, learn this while you're healthy, learn this before you are already in that world, because it is, it's trying to teach, you know, often a drowning person, how to swim, to, to help you to stop being afraid of your diagnosis, to stop being afraid of these supposed metastases. I mean, it's possible, but it is something that is you know, if we were raised with this, if children are raised with this, when they just know, oh, my body does everything for a reason. When I have shocks, when I have conflicts, when I have stuff in my life that's unresolved, my tissues adapt. And these tissue adaptations aren't scary. They're not intended to kill me or to harm me. They're meant to enhance my ability to survive. It's my job to downgrade, to be aware of what's going on within me and the messages that my nervous system is receiving about the danger in my environment and to transmute that and to change it so I can, you know, live in harmony with my ancient biology. Because that's the thing we have to take into account. Our bodies are very old. They adapted to a very different way of life than the way of life that we currently have. And when we have a disconnect between how we operate and how we live and our biological code, the biological code wins because it's older. And so that's where when people are, you know, they talk about, oh, well, you know, and why then do so many people die from this process if it's in, intended to help us to live? And that's where we have to look at that indoctrination and what we believe about what's going on in the body. You know, because yes, there is a limitation of matter if you have a conflict shock and you don't resolve it. You know, what if there's no solution to this problem or you can't see the solution or you're in a frame of mind where you just can't access the solution? The body can only be in conflict for so long before it depletes because it's very metabolically expensive to be in conflict. You know, when you are in fight or flight, when you're not sleeping through the night every night, the body isn't getting that rest and digest. It's not getting that healing uh, parasympathetic restoration that we need in order to survive. And so, you know, we can waste away, we can develop cachexia. So this is like where you're very, very skinny and you're losing weight and you're losing weight because you haven't resolved the conflict. You haven't found um, a resolution. And so that's one reason that a person can, you know, quote, die of cancer is non-resolution. Um, and then we have where the, the hanging healing, where you do resolve the conflict, but the scab is being ripped off constantly. So the body is going into healing, it's going into the repair phase, but you're tracking back to the conflict. And so it's on and off and on and off and on and off, which again, the body can only keep that cycle up for a period of time. Um, and then there's also the conflicts that go on for such a long time that by the time you do get into healing, let's say you're in healing, but it's, you know, there's a lot of tissue repair that needs to happen. And sometimes again, the limitation of matter, the body just can't sustain the healing phase. Um, and so it's not that, quote, cancer can't kill you. But again, is it actually the cancer itself? Is it the tissue change or is it the overall body's ability to be in, in and out of conflict for such a long time? Um, and then also we have to look at the fear. You know, what are you afraid of what your body is doing? So the, the fear of what the body is doing, the fear of what, you know, the doctors are saying that's one of the thing that I hear, you know, from people so often is they, they believe it. They're like, this makes more sense than anything else. And it tracks perfectly with what happened in my life. I see it. It makes sense. This, I, I know in my bones, this is the way that it is. But my doctor says, but my family says, you know, Dr. Hammer even said that like your family, you know, family's kind of the, one of the biggest things that can prevent a person from, from actually healing because they're constantly being um, bombarded by their family's fears. 
in the fear of, you know, I'd rather be safe than sorry. I'd rather do the treatment. And so they're split. They're split in their energy. They're to them in their soul. It makes sense that their body is doing what it's doing, but their family thinks that they're being irresponsible or they're not, you know, doing everything that they can to survive. And so they're torn. Which again, it's hard to reconcile all of that because you need the support of your family. You know, when you're going through a healing phase, you need the support really of your whole tribe, ideally, that the tribe would come around you and support you. You know, there was a story, um, a case of uh, someone's grandmother, I think, that had developed some type of cancer. I can't remember all of the specifics of it, but I know it was something financial. And so they gave the grandma $5,000 to put under her pillow. And it was just this whole thing of like, she needs this security. She needs to feel as though like she has resources and, um, and she, you know, would sleep with, and, and she started getting better. And then I guess one of the granddaughters kind of inter- inadvertently said to her, like, you know, you're going to have to give that back. Right. And then she, she plummeted and and ended up passing away, you know, which is just, a, you know, the the careless words, the things that we say to people, the way that it impacts them, um, what a big difference that can make, you know, versus those words of encouragement and you've got this rather than I think you're doing something dangerous. Like, how does that impact the psyche of a person? This is why you can't leave consciousness at the door. We say it all the time. And it's like so many systems of health and healing. It's just like, they just ignore it. They ignore the fact that like our bodies are adapting to our thoughts all the time, what's going on. And yet people ignore it or, or they generalize it. Like you said earlier, Oh, stress causes disease, mind, body, mind, body, you know, which again, it's true, but there's such a level of specificity here with, with this body of knowledge that goes to levels that I've never seen before and that don't exist. And I think that's why I think a lot of people um, more and more people are being open to it, but I think a lot of people who have skin in the game and other systems and other modalities, it it flips them on their head. And so they would have to learn a complete new language and they'd have to do things in a, in a different manner um, to to embody this, this knowledge. Um, so, yeah. And it doesn't mean do nothing. And that's, that's another misconception that people have. So they, you know, they'll, they'll hear or they'll read something and then people be like, well, so you just do nothing. And it's like, no, you don't do nothing. You yep. do very specific things. You you have to change the way that you are viewing the adaptation first by understanding, understanding your body. What does this adaptation mean? Do I really deeply understand how this adaptation is for my benefit? You know, does that make sense to me? And so that's why, you know, we encourage people to learn, to learn the biological programs again, before you ever have any of them, you know, when, when things are going seemingly well, it's like, learn about this, learn how your body operates so that if something does happen, you know, like if, you know, people ask me this sometimes, like, what would you do if you got cancer? Well, one, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't even use the terminology. I got cancer. I would see it and I would know it for the adaptation that it is. I know I've had, you know, cancerous processes go on in my body because I've had shocks. I've had adaptations. I've had symptoms come and go, but it would never be diagnosed by, because even in, when you look at what is a diagnosis, it's an arbitrary limit. It's something that they take a snapshot at a moment in time, you know, and they see, uh, they look at the nucleus and they see how much division is going on. And they say, okay, this is the point at which this is a problem. This is malignant. This is scary. This is bad versus, oh, it's benign. It's not a problem. And really, that's just the difference of when did they catch it? You know, were you in the midst of a healing phase? So example, in the cervix, 
The conflict related to the cervix is a sexual frustration type of conflict, a sexual separation. And so during the active conflict, the cervix is widening. There's erosion of tissue cells and there's a biological purpose, of course. And so this, if you're having a sexual frustration conflict, the cervix gets wider. So the passageway through which the semen can transport into the uterus and, you know, hopefully sustain, a, you know, create a pregnancy, which is nature's, you know, primary uh, thing for nature is survival. And then the next thing is reproduction. Those are like the most two important things for life to persist and continue. And so this, when you have a sexual frustration conflict, the body sees that as, you know, the, the conflict of not being mated. I'm not mated. Therefore, I need to ensure that the next time I get mated, I'm going to, you know, something good's going to happen. And so the good thing for nature is for a pregnancy to occur. So the cervix widens on purpose. And if you have a pap smear, which is something that they suggest women do, um, yearly, um, starting at, I don't know what age, but they, they want you to, you know, have, and look at these cells. What are these cells doing? And women will then get diagnosed or, you know, they'll say, Oh, it's abnormal. There are abnormal cells. And then they'll want to take a snip of that organ so that they can look at it with more detail. But a woman who understands that during the conflict, there's loss of cells and they could be they could register as abnormal during the healing phase after i resolve the sexual frustration conflict that tissue is going to refill which again can be diagnosed as abnormal cells because there's cells filling in a tissue space that was eroded and so again it makes perfect sense when you understand the what that tissue does why it would adapt in this way and all of a sudden cervical cancer becomes oh, this makes perfect sense. I know what I dealt with. I know what I resolved. I know why these tissues are doing what, what they're doing. You know, and so, you know, when it comes even to things like testing, like, should I go and have a mammogram? Should I go and have a pap smear? Should I go and have a colonoscopy and like look in all my orifices to see what's going on in there? And I do think that the, the more that we do this testing, the more that people see these changes that are going on, we're going to see obviously more cancers. And since we've done more testing over the last 50 years, what have we seen? Higher and higher rates of cancer and people being so grateful that we caught it at stage one. But, you know, if we're doing testing and that's, that's actually, you know, when you're, when you understand your body, do you want to have, do you want to have these tests? Like myself personally, I, I personally feel no desire to, but another person who is still kind of foot in both worlds, like you can look at it as gathering data. I'm going to gather information and that information, you know, one, I have to protect my psyche. Like um, if they say abnormal cells, if they say this is questionable, how do I anticipate I'm going to respond to that? One, you maybe won't know until you're in that moment. And that's the whole, again, the nature of the conflict shock is you're, you're caught off guard. You weren't prepared for it. You thought everything was going to be fine, but they, they were concerned. You know, if you can take that information, um, if you can stay in a neutral zone and just get the data, the data could give you some information about something that either has already been resolved or something that needs to be resolved. So, you know, there for myself, I don't tell people do this, don't do that. I want you to pay attention to how do I feel about this? What makes the most sense to me? Because everything you do has to make sense to you. You know, if you're doing things that don't make sense to you, that can be a conflict in and of itself. That split energy is like, oh, I'm doing this treatment. I don't really believe in it. Oh, I'm doing this scan. I don't really want to do it. Well, why are you doing it? 
you know, like knowing yourself and having that inner alignment when we're living dis, like a disintegrated in a disintegrated way by doing things that we don't believe in, there's a split energy there. And so that's worth um, discovering and looking for in yourself. Well, it's a lot of people. Yeah. And the thing is, this is knowledge to be learned so you can be more empowered at the end of the day. Like this is for you. Like I, I don't, I'm not afraid of symptoms anymore at all because of this knowledge. And like, what does that do to your psyche and sense of self to not be living with that level of fear? And even the subtle fear is like, oh, okay, wow, I have, I, and again, I don't know uh, Drew Medicine super well, but I, I have a basic understanding and I can take that basic understanding and continue to research and look up things and see what's going on in my body. So it's just like, it's so cool that this information's out there. And I just love how open you are and how much you share this information. It's incredible. Um, my question to you is, because I, I just want to hear your thoughts this information, this knowledge has been around for 40 years. And we're looking at probably 99.327% of humanity that probably has no clue about it. And so I want to ask you, why? <laughs> why? I mean, that's a that's a great question. I mean, there are um, you know, what would it what would it look like if this was commonly accepted? You know, and what industries stand to lose. You know, like Dr. Hammer, he had independent verification from multiple universities, the university in uh, Vienna and Dusseldorf and Ternava. He had these. So what he would do is he'd go in and they'd take these cases and he'd be in front of like a panel of university doctors and he'd demonstrate the biological laws and he'd prove the, the, the biological laws in every case. And so they'd have to say, okay, this is, you're verified this. And that he has formal verification from these independent, from these universities, yet it's never extrapolated to the whole university system. Really, it's at the point where they, they have to now disprove, you know, that's how it works. When you've gotten approval, when it, when it, when you show that something is how it is, someone now has to come along and actually disprove this work. No one Um, has. And no one has. And so this is correct. And <clears throat> there's a great example. Um, I love the story of Dr. Hammer. He um, was uh, doing the panel for the um, the Ternava uh, University group. And he is, so they bring in a, a patient. They're like, okay, tell us what's going on with this patient, Hammer. <laughs> and so he has the brain scan and he has access to the patient to ask them questions. And so he looks at the brain scan and the patient has come in with neurological symptoms and balance problems. So on the brain scan, he looks and sees there is an edema, a swelling, a large swelling in the cerebellum. And so when there's swelling in the cerebellum, that causes disequilibrium, inability to to walk, to balance. And so he knows based on the location, because he mapped out the entire brain and knows what, what each of the centers, each of the control centers of the brain, what organs they are associated with. And so the area in the central cerebellum where he saw this edema, um, he knew was the heart, the pericardium. So the pericardium is the protective coating around the heart. And so he knew that this um, patient had a an attack against the heart conflict. And so he starts questioning and he's, you know, in front of this, this panel and he's questioning. He's like, okay, well, 
you know, attack against the heart. This could be uh, that your parents had a heart attack or your wife had a heart attack. So he's asking, did your parents have a heart condition? Did your wife have a heart condition? Did your, um, do your, you know, did any of your kids have a heart condition? No, 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 no. It's just getting a bunch of no's for a whole hour. He keeps questioning and the panel's like, all right, Hummer, maybe it's not always the case. Maybe, maybe you're wrong. And so he goes into the next hour questioning, questioning. And so he, um, asked, did, you know, did you have a dog that had a heart condition? And all of a sudden the patient remembers and he starts telling the story from 20 years prior. And so it was, there was a festival going on where, um, part of the festival was that you, you know, make a goose dinner. And so he hears the dogs barking in the backyard and he goes out there and, um, there was a goose thief trying to steal his geese, uh, that, you know, they were going to use for the, to eat the next day for the festival. And so he goes out to confront the goose thief and the goose thief turns around and has an ax in his hand and hits him in the chest, one inch from his heart. And so he ends up, you know, was laying there bleeding. I guess they, they got him in time and, you know, helped him uh, to get to the hospital and, you know, he was fine, but he had, you know, this attack against his heart. What's more classic than a, an actual ax into your chest? And, you know, but when you're questioned about something like that, your, you know, mind is going to suppress that type of memory. That is, that's something you don't want to be remembering all the time. And so then, so, you know, all the panel, their jaws were dropped, like what? Okay. So there's something to this, this guy and his system, because, you know, lo and behold, there was an attack against the heart. Then they, then Hammer had to figure out why was it 20 years later, did it come into healing? And so it turns out that he had recently moved from his country home where this situation with the goose thief happened. Um, he had recently, his son moved him to the city. And so he was on track constantly. So the neighbor, he always had this ongoing kind of fear of this, you know, attack against the heart because of the neighbor, because of where he lived and um, just the fear of it constantly happening. So he was on track for 20 years his body was remembering the fact that this thing happened. But once he moved to the city, he was away from the track. And so when you're away from a track, it resolves the conflict. You know, it can't happen again if I live in the city. And that's one of the things about a conflict is when what happened then can't happen now. If you're no longer living in this home, living in the countryside, um, you're not going to have this type of situation happen to you again. That's what caused the resolution. That's what caused this 20-year ongoing conflict to come into healing, thus the large swelling in the brain. So, I mean, and this is, and he pr proved it again and again and again in thousands and thousands and thousands of cases. And so, and that's the thing. This is, these are natural laws. He says, these are biological laws. They are always correct. <laughs> There's always a conflict. There's always an impact in the brain. And that's where the tissue adaptations there is a map for this and the map exists in every doctor. It really is. It is the greatest crime in humanity. I think that this has not been verified and that not every doctor, because I actually get pissed about it because like when you look at people and what they're experiencing and Dr. Hammer, his heart was broken for these patients that are being terrified by a diagnosis and terrified and, you know, their bodies ravaged by really intense treatments. And, you know, even if the treatments are well-intentioned, you know, I don't think that every you know doctor out there is trying to kill people, but you have to look at the, the effects of what they're doing to people, instilling them with fear, freaking them out, making them feel irresponsible for even questioning or looking at different perspectives. It's wrong. It's wrong when this information exists.
It is malpractice that this information exists and that medical doctors are not teaching this and using this every single day and helping people to feel comfortable and helping them to understand that your body's doing the right thing. Not that your body has turned on you, not that your body, you know, just screws up. You know, I, you know, a a woman that I know, she had a, you know, a, a cancer diagnosis and they did the surgery and, you know, she's like, well, doc, you know, what's the, what, you know, what are the chances? Do you know, am I going to be okay? And he's like, well, your body loves to make cancer. So we'll probably be partying again in a few years. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> right. And it's like, that is the mentality. They see cancer as something that just happens and they don't have any explanation for why it happens. They don't have any consistent theories that are accurate 100% of the time. They have guesses, they have assumptions. I mean, but when you look at this system and you see the consistency of it and you start talking to people and you start seeing, oh yeah, this this happened. This person had an attack against the heart. This person had a self-devaluation, a profound self-devaluation. And you connect that to their bone cancer and you see it's, it's, this is how biology functions. Yeah. Can't deny it. Once you see it, it's like, you see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's criminal. It is absolutely criminal, um, yes. you know, but it's just the nature of the beast that we're dealing with right now, you know, and, you know, I think through these conversations, I, I truly do feel in my bones that this information is getting out there and is becoming more prevalent. Even in my general conversations, I feel like there's more awareness now around GNM and, you know, hopefully that just continues and who knows what's possible if these conversations really continue and begin to, you know, break into mainstream ears. It'd be very, very, very interesting. What I wanted to ask was back to self-devaluation. What is an example of a C self-devaluation conflict that would result in like um, leukemia diagnosis or is bone deep on that level? Because I've dealt with obviously awareness now around self-devaluation. I've had my own conflicts, um, but I'm curious as to what's something that's that intense to results on, on, a, on a bone level. So, you know, leukemia is one of those um, cancers that will sometimes happen in children. And people sometimes are like, well, how, how could a child feel this? You know, so children and the elderly, they tend to generalize really easily. And someone recently asked me, um, you know, uh, how does something like the cry it out method affect a child? And so we don't know. So when, you know, a child is left to cry it out, you don't know exactly how that individual child is going to experience being left alone. But some children might generalize, I'm no good. <clears throat> I'm like they might generalize and have this experience of like I'm being left. That must mean that I'm unwanted, that I'm no good. And so something like that could initiate a severe self-devaluation conflict. You know, having money problems. And if you're, you know, if you see yourself as the provider for your family and all of a sudden you're having money problems, it's like, I'm no good. Like I am worthless. Yeah. That that could be an yeah. impact. You know, if you um, you know, you, if your partner is talking to someone else, that could be a profound self-devaluation. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm no good. I'm unwanted. Yeah. Uh, so there's all sorts of things that can um, initiate that for a person. But again, it's how they take it. It's not this thing happens and you automatically have a severe self-devaluation conflict that leads to, you know, anemia and leukemia. No, it's how did it hit you? How did it strike you? You know, based on your 
early life experience based on really even family programming, you know, the way that you are raised, the vulnerabilities and issues that your parents have, how you see yourself, what you see as important. All of these things are playing a a role in how something strikes you. And again, it's just, it strikes, you know, it hits you like a lightning bolt. It's just like, boom, it lands that a depressing conclusion about yourself, something that's so devastating and it hits you in the bones. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild, you know, to think about. And even just when you were talking about children that I wanted to bring that up because I feel like leukemia, you know, happens in children um, often. And even just the thought of, let's say you had like a traumatic birth or premature or whatever, and you're put in like a, a plastic box, you know, an incubator or whatever, whatever you're put in and you're like kept away from everything. And you have all these machines attached to you. I can't only imagine what's going on. Now, obviously the child doesn't have the the language or understanding to to say the words I'm unwanted, but this is happening on such a, a subconscious primitive, like way, you know, um, where you can still, where your body is adapting. You're still going through that, even though you're the, you know, two month, two week old baby isn't like, well, um, I'm unwanted at the current moment. When you, when you, when you contextualize it with having spent, you know, nine to 10 months inside a womb connected to the mother, then all of a sudden, you know, the stark contrast of what takes place as soon as, as soon as one comes out, then yeah. Yeah. Something that's interesting is, um, children with uh, down syndrome tend to have higher rates of leukemia, which makes sense though. So down syndrome is a double hearing conflict that tends to happen early in the pregnancy. So loud noises, um, so like chainsaws and jackhammers and, um, you know, even uh, something like ultrasound, ultrasound um, yeah. Yeah. when we're bombarded with really loud sounds that can create this double hearing constellation, which leads to, you know, what we call down syndrome. And so a, a child who has that expression, they, uh, they can, they feel they're different, you know, and that self devaluation. So why would children with down syndrome have higher rates of leukemia? Is it because their genes are wonky and wonky genes cause the down syndrome and now wonky genes are causing the leukemia. That's the conventional viewpoint. But when we look at the specific biological adaptive function of these programs, we see double hearing conflict. The child has this manifestation of these symptoms of uh, down syndrome, and then they feel different. You know, they're looked at differently. They, they, they feel that sense of there's something wrong with me, <clears throat> that there's something within me that, you know, is not as valuable. And so that is that association. Mm. Even, I guess, you know, like bullying inside schools, extreme forms of bullying yes. could lead to such result as well. Absolutely. Well, and yeah. that's, you know, what we are looking at uh, within families, within societies, like what are we doing? We're living in a very non-biological way. We are not living in accordance with our biological code. And every separation um, from our biological code leads to more and more conflict, which again, that's when we're getting into the Germanische Heilkunde. This is the Germanic, Germanic not being Germany, being the Germanic peoples. They they recognized this. They lived in harmony with nature. They didn't have cities and schools. They didn't have you know, commerce and money lending. They didn't have any of that because they they were this tight knit tribe and they lived in harmony with nature. And they, you know, had ways of solving problems among people. And it just, it was, it was a harmonious way of living. 
And as we have separated from that, and as we, you know, changed how we do life and we, you know, separate mothers and babies early on, and we have, you know, the slave system, it's like, oh, of course, (laughs) the slave system is designed to keep people sick and addicted and unwell. In exactly. Yeah. We live in such a highly conflicted society, you know, like so conflicted. And again, people want to, so many people in the health world, they want to like point out like, okay, we did a study. It's because of the food. It's because people are smoking less. It's because of this, it's because of that. And even think of like the blue zone studies, you know, they go to these places in the world where people are living to be over a hundred years old and people want to say it's because they're eating the local foods. And I also want to be like, yeah, it's nice to eat local foods and healthy foods. Of course, like it's, I would say it's better you know, for your body, you can get through healing probably in a better way when you're more robust and you're eating good foods. But I think of people on like the island of Ikaria in Greece, you know, which is one of the blue zone places, like they didn't even wear a watch. Like they, they highlighted, they didn't even wear a watch. They were so connected to the land. They were connected to community and family. They probably didn't deal with major, major conflicts. Or if they did, they resolved them quickly because when you're in a tight knit community, you know, you have that support. And you have these traditions and there's a foundation of, of love. Doesn't mean there aren't issues that come up, but it's just something interesting to think about in terms of some of these places. What is like, I feel like these, these um, blue zone places were more in line with the Germanic people in terms of how they lived in harmony with nature. And then how does that impact their psyche, their nervous system, et cetera? You know, what's yeah, like really... Culture. Yeah, sorry. Say, all those original cultures, they know they, you know, Native Americans, they knew they they all and they had what this this close knit tribe. They had you know rites of passage. They like they did everything differently, and we don't have any of that now. We have disconnected people, no tribe, no community, no support. You're on your own, you know. And there and then and yeah. then what people try to do? What <laughs> we try to do a top down communistic, like, okay, the government's going to be my family now. And so the government's going to provide for me, which is not the same, you you know, so that's the thing is like, when you're looking at these family principles, um, you know, something like, you know, quote, communism, it only makes sense in small groups of people who share values, we can't, it cannot be extrapolated up to the government level. And then everyone expected, oh, you know, mommy and daddy government are going to take care of me. It's like, no, you need actual mommy and daddy in your family and this close knit tribe and community. And that's, you know, that's why we have people who, you know, feel entitled to having things given to them because they need it. And there's not an argument that you need it, but it's not that everyone is supposed to, you know, give it to you and pay. It's, it's on a smaller scale level is what is organic to, you know, small groups uh, that thrive versus, you know, massive groups that have so much, you know, uh, diversity among their values and what's important to them. Yeah. Mm. What's really being highlighted for me through this whole conversation is the profound importance of the company you keep. Mm. You know, just think about the degrees of toxicity within our, within our relationships, the trauma bonds that people have with their parents, you know, like constantly being self-devaluated, de- um, constantly trying to prove themselves to their friends, to their family, forever, forever. A lot of people never, ever break out of that whatsoever. You know, in, in Australia, we have something called tall poppy syndrome, even, you know, if, if, if you stand out, um, you're going to get chopped down. So... Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I guess we can make the conclusion that collectivism leads to cancer. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, hmm, where do we go from here? 
feel like I had some questions I want well, to ask. Well, I mean, I, I, I'd like to even keep touching on self-devaluation a little bit because like everyone seems to like just have these general back issues, neck issues, you know, constantly, yeah. you know, and it's like, it becomes pretty obvious. Can you talk and talk about that on a more general level? You know, like there was a time when we were beginning this podcast and we were building our business and I felt like I was struggling to provide, you know, for my family, making that transition into entrepreneurial endeavors. I constantly had lower back issues. Totally. Yes. And, you know, as a chiropractor that, you know, the self-devaluation, you know, like, yes, the severe ones are more rare. So, you know, leukemia isn't very common. That's like the most severe expression of the self-devaluation conflict. But yes, people are having self-devaluations all the time, you know, feeling not smart enough that affects the skull, the neck, you know, feeling a sense of injustice of this isn't right. I shouldn't have to bow my head to this. Um, you know, relationship self-devaluations with the shoulders, you know, the body reveals the nature of the self-value conflict. And again, the whole purpose is cell loss during the conflict active phase, followed by cell restoration and thickening and making stronger. So when you are achy, when you've got pain, that means you resolve something and your body's now restoring that tissue, making it stronger than it was before. And so this is reframing pain. We have to reframe pain because if pain to you means something's wrong with me now, now I need to bring down this inflammation. Oh, I ate too much inflammatory foods and now my body is inflamed. Inflammation is always healing. Inflammation indicates that there is a construction zone going on at the at the tissue level and that cells are doing something to repair that that area following adaptive conflict. And so paying attention to when you get an ache, when you get a pain, when something hurts, you know, like something that has happened to me uh, several times since learning GNM is um, like if I haven't worked out recently and I, and I start feeling like, you know, flabby in my arms or something. And then I finally do a workout and I will have such a like sore, sore elbow. Normally it's like my right elbow or my right wrist. And it's the resolution where I'm feeling, you know, I'm devaluing myself because of lack of physical performance. I am, you know, not strong enough. I'm getting weak. I I'm feeling myself is like out of shape. And then I exercise, I resolve that conflict. And then it's like, well, why did I hurt my wrist? Did I do something wrong during the exercise that caused Mm -hmm. me to have this pain now? No, it was that I had lost tissue in my, in my connective tissues during that devaluation conflict. And so even paying attention to something like what is a devaluation thought? I'm out of shape. I don't feel good about myself. I should be stronger. I should look better. You know, this, an aesthetic, you can have an aesthetic self-devaluation So if you don't like, you know, something I, in high school, there was just this theme around like legs. Oh, you know, my one cousin, she was a soccer player and, you know, she got called thunder thighs. And then there was a conversation that I remember coming up of like, oh, oh, the women in this family, thunder thighs. And I was so self-conscious of my thighs and my legs and I couldn't wear shorts. And it was just like, it was a whole thing. I would obsess. I'd have, and it was a conflict because I know literally if I left the house in shorts, I wouldn't stop thinking about it. I would be like, I shouldn't be wearing these. This is, you know, it was a constant like self-devaluation program. Um, I would be awkward. Like if I sat on something, like if my legs squished in a certain way, I would be just like so embarrassed of my body, which is absurd. But when the body perceives self-devaluation of an aesthetic nature, you know, like regarding the legs, what does it do? <laughs> it erodes fat 
And then it rebuilds fat once you resolve it, causing the thing we call cellulite. So the thing I don't want, the thing I'm paranoid about, the thing I'm trying to avoid and like not have literally through this pattern of unconscious, you know, um, judgment of my body, I'm literally actively creating the adaptation of what I don't want. And so for me, that was like, whoa, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, again, this is such a different way of thinking as well, because how many of us have taken time off from working out? You know, I feel like a lot of people, maybe not everyone have gone through this. And I speak for myself. I'm definitely in in a stage right now where, you know, I'm more mindful of like, this is something that I need to, that I want to do more of, you know, I've taken uh, my fitness for granted over the years for being an athlete and doing all these things. And lately it's, it's not something that I've been doing as much though. Several months ago, I feel like I started hiking more regularly and like my right Achilles started, you know, bothering me, you know, and it's still, it's kind of like in and out. My right Achilles is, is annoying me. And I'm like, I've never had to deal with a right Achilles issue. And you said something before that was really interesting is that someone can go and start working out. And then what they do is they go, Oh, because I haven't worked out so long, I, I twisted something or hurt something or I did a thing. When you're when you actually did a good thing, you you worked out. I mean, you've resolved this like period of conflict activity for for many people. It could be a long period of time or or a, a hanging conflict, I guess. Um and and then you you're just like, what the fuck? I did the good thing, but now my body's like hurting. And so, what do you recommend? Because obviously taking supplements or putting things on that are going to take down the inflammation aren't the most ideal, but people are doing this all over the, oh, everywhere. They're like, Oh, I got to put on the CBD oil. I got to put on the, the Arnica. I got to, I got to take the aspirin. I got to do this cause I'm in pain. So if you haven't worked out for a long time and then you're like, you know what, fuck it. I'm, I'm getting in shape. I'm doing my thing. You start doing it, but then you face these obstacles. What do you tell people that are in that position? No one ever died from pain. There you go. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's how you want to do it. If you want to put some oils on, if you, you know, want to use ice or get an ice bed, do, do something. If you want to comfort yourself, that's really where all of the, the remedies and the stuff comes in. And that's the thing is, you know, it doesn't like remedies are to support the body. They do not fix the conflict. And so that's why we have to know this map. We have to know what we're conflicted about, you know, comfort yourself, you know, soothe yourself. If you, if you need to, if you're really uncomfortable, um, that's fine. We just don't want to be thinking that, oh, there's something wrong with my body right now. So that's the big reframe. Yeah. So I, mean, I, those, I was going to say real quickly. So are you telling, telling me that by me drinking my own pee is not going to solve all my health issues? That, you know, drinking your pee, having and doing an enema with your pee or with coffee and all that stuff. And, and, that, and that's where, you know, it's how does that resolve my conflict? When you're understanding that these adaptations in the body are coming from conflict, you're not looking to the remedy anymore to, to fix something, to detox something, to cleanse. You know, you might do something because it feels good because you mm. enjoy it. You know, and yeah. that's where it's like the enjoyment of what you're doing, your belief, the placebo yeah. effect is very powerful if you believe in it. And that's the thing is I had many miraculous results from changing diets and from doing detoxes, but I believed in it. Someone presented me with a model. They told me, here's the science behind, you know, detoxing or taking charcoal or doing whatever, eating this diet. And I was like, yes, this is the answer. And I believed it. And so I did it and I had amazing results. And so it's not that those amazing results are, you know, a lie. 
they really happened. You know, some people may be doing, you know, urine and all that and like feeling awesome, but is it really because of the substance? Or is it because of the positive expectation, the shift in self-concept, the subtle changes in yourself that you're feeling now that you're kind of buying into this ideology? And that doesn't, it's not, it's not intended to diminish the effect of it, but just know it's because I really believe in it and I really feel good when I do it. And so that is the the, the up level in my experience. And that's the thing is we have to look beyond just the material because when you're a materialist and you're like, no, it was the urine itself. The material of it is the thing that's caused this rege- you know, rejuvenation of my system. You know, that is looking beyond your experience of it, you know, because if you experienced it as horrible and disgusting, would you have that same result? Probably not. Yeah. So if, if you're going to drink your own pee, just, you know, think that it's going to help you and then you'll be okay. But again, this, again, we said it earlier, we've said it in our previous episodes, like the type of person that's like going to make a change in their diet, you know, and start eating healthier, you know, what does that do to you, you know, from, from a conscious standpoint, as opposed to just the things that you changed and started eating. It's like yeah, exactly. eating someone that shifted your whole thinking. Of like, you know what? I've been living life this way for so long, but now I'm taking life. I'm taking the bull by the horns. I'm making some changes. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to go on a raw juice diet. I'm going to go do saunas six days a week or whatever the case may be. Because again, like I want to talk about this in the in the cancer world, in the alternative holistic world. I mean, you can't even get through a, a scroll on, on your Instagram feed without someone just telling you like they found the cure to cancer, the things that's going to prevent you from having cancer. Just the other day, a friend sent me something about some doctor where he was saying, if you do a one week water fast, that is going to prevent you from getting cancer in the future, like 70% of the time or something like that. And I'm just like, how did he figure this out? And also, what are your thoughts on that? Like something so like that. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. It's like, okay, so I'm interested in the experience of those who can maintain a seven-day water fast. I mean, fasting and prayer is well known as far as like a, you know, something that heals the body, that helps the body. But is it, you know, so you are in a state, a person that can, you know, not eat anything and just be on water for seven days, like you have to kind of go to a zone. You got to shift something within you. You can't just casually not eat for seven days. There's something kind of profound that is taking place. And what happens during those seven days? What if that is, you know, you're coming to terms with things about yourself? What if, you know, you like you're addressing things going deep uh, in areas that if you didn't do that seven day water fast, would you have ever addressed these things in your experience? You know, what's going on with those people during those, you know, during those seven days that shifts them, you know, so if that statistic is true, and somehow doing a seven day, you know, water fast prevents, uh, you know, whatever, some group of people, um, you know, what about the people who did the water fast and, you know, the other 30%, you know, numbers, statistics are kind of funny <laughs> because they really, they, they tell a story about some of the people, some of the time, but they don't tell the story about all of the people all of the time, which is where, you know, why the biological laws really resonate with me because the, they're, they are irrespective of they belong to biology, which means they are consistent and reliable, and we can expect them to be that way in the next best case. Whereas a water fast or, you know, a coffee enema or a urine, whatever, it's like, what are the results? Yeah. 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 Um, a law is different than a theory. We have lots and lots and lots and lots of theories out there. But you said something that was actually really cool um, around the what what's a person's state of mind during a water fast? Because 
for many people, eating food can be a way to self-medicate, you know, to, to keep pushing things down that needs to maybe come up to the surface to be dealt with. And so I can see how from that standpoint, doing something that's like a, a challenge, you know, that's a challenge that may force you to face aspects of yourself, maybe resolve some things as well. Who knows? That could be a, you know, a powerful shift in consciousness that can support your health ultimately. Definitely. But it's just a different way of looking at it. It's not like the thing that is the thing that caused me to not get the thing. It's my shift in mindset, my belief system, my perception, my the altered state of consciousness and my view of self that had the greatest impact. Yeah. Well, if, if like the lavender and the patchouli oil supports you psychologically in the process, then, you know, go for it is what we're saying, ultimately. So I want to ask you, um, obviously, your background is in chiropractic to some degree, but what are your thoughts around chiropractic now? Like, do you still advocate that? How do you think that can support an individual? Totally. I love it. I love yeah. getting adjusted and I still yeah. love adjusting people. It's like, it's a wonderful, you know, energetic exchange. Like there's something that transpires when, you know, someone is, you know, has your hands on, on someone. So there's something powerful that happens just in that in and yeah. of itself, I think. Um, you know, the stimulation to the nervous system, I find to be overall beneficial to help you to adapt, to get movement in joints where movement should be taking place. But because of, you know, we sit a lot because of, you know, the lifestyle that we have now that, you know, we have a lot of stiffness, we have a lot of, you know, joint joints that are have a lot of scar tissue. So getting that movement in there, having an adjustment and lighting up, you know, so movement is, is somatic nourishment. So like the body needs to move. And when you move your body, the brain lights up. And so the impact of like having a, a body that is well moving, where all of the joints are, are active and going through their full range of motion, like yeah. that is this wonderful, like nourishment for your, your whole body and your whole nervous system. And, you know, the impact, so of an upper cervical adjustment to the vagus nerve. And so the vagus, that's the parasympathetic, you know, leader, that's the um, rest and digest. And so if we are, you know, adjusting the spine and having a positive impact on our adaptability on uh, vagal tone, it's like, it has an impact. And I think that is a totally positive, wonderful impact. However, I don't see it the way that I used to, you know, the idea prior to getting into chiropractic school, I, you know, the whole notion of misaligned spine, you know, and this was um, the, the founders that there was a subluxation, that there's a misalignment in the spine um, that is causing a subluxation. So less than full function to a nerve. And that's causing, you know, so if you're at T11 or wherever it's going to the stomach or, you know, different levels of the spine misalignment causes um, dysfunction to the end organ because of that misalignment. And the idea being if I adjust the spine, create alignment, that this nerve will function better and that the organ will no longer be dis-ease. Um, but seeing dis-ease in a different way, knowing that um, you know, spinal movement is ideal, but that its adaptation is what's causing the organ to express the symptoms that it's expressing, it changes things. So you're doing it for a different reason. I think it's still, again, like wonderful, supportive, help, helpful. Uh, but I no longer think it's 100%. You absolutely have to do it. If you don't do it, you're going to be sick. You're going to die. Like, you know, there, there was a lot of um, dogma that I subscribe to when I was fully, fully in that world. And now I just see it in a different role. And again, see it as um, helpful, but not as the thing that's going to change um, 
the dis-ease in your organ, the adaptation in your organ, because, you know, but again, when people would come in and sign up for a care plan of chiropractic adjustments, and I would teach them about nutrition and do all of the things that I did back in that world, people got better. People, you know, their acid reflux went away and their digestive problems improved and their skin improved and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, well, how did that happen? But just like you, you said before, your osmosis, it's, it's the change. I'm paying for something. Maybe never before in my life did I pay for like a wellness program. And here I am, I'm doing my wellness program. And they come into the environment of a chiropractic office and all the ones that I've worked in. They're wonderful, encouraging, supportive, like great environments. They're uplifting. You know, like when I put my hands on someone to adjust them, I am just like so enthusiastic and I'm exchanging this, this wonderful energy with them. And so it's like, it's a a beautiful thing. And again, in and of itself can be healing to a person who's never experienced that before. And it shifts the way they think about themselves. They now see themselves as a healthy person and the self-devaluations that can resolve the indigestible morsels, you know, so it represents a change. Now, the thing for me was that when, you know, the people that would come in again and again, who are doing all of the things, and then they'd have pain out of nowhere, or they'd have some type of, you know, they get a a test and have some type of diagnosis. Then it's like, okay, you're doing all the stuff that I'm telling you to do. And here's this ongoing problem where you get this, you know, this, this tissue adaptation. I didn't have this map, unfortunately, at the time when I was in practice. And so it was, you know, okay, well, let's amp up. Okay. We let's cut out some more foods. Let's change the diet even more. Let's do another detox. Let's, you know, uh, try to figure something else out on that physical, um, modification level rather than the soul level. And that's, that's what this work is for me now. It's soul work. This is what's going on with you really like deep down, (laughs) we got to go beyond what you're do, what you're eating, the physical stuff you're putting in your mouth, which supplements you're taking. And we've got to go at like, what's going on with your relationships? What's going on with the unresolved conflicts in your life? Because that's where this, you know, frozen shoulders coming from. That's, it's not because, you know, it's not a physical thing. It's a, it's a spiritual thing. It's a conflict thing. It's something that is ongoing in your life. Yeah. So like when you work with a client now, like, is that, is that like emotional work involved as well in, facilitating a resolution or is it more so just pointing them towards what it is or what it could be and exploring that, like asking the questions, like in that Dr. Harmer example you gave us? It's both. It is, you know, so we have to find out what caused this, where did this start, what's happening in your experience. And, you know, when it comes to a conflict, the the best resolution is going to be something practical, you know, and especially for like children, you're not talking to them about, you know, their thoughts and philosophy and beliefs on things, um, you're practically changing their environment. So if the child is going to daycare and they keep having chronic eczema and rashes, that child can't go to daycare anymore because it's a separation conflict. They don't want to be separated from you. You can try to explain to them that mommy needs to work and I need to do this. And, you know, but the child ultimately just needs to be home. The amount you know, of symptoms around daycare and how everyone's just like, oh, daycare is a Petri dish. That's why. But no one's thinking about the disconnect that's taking place in daycare centers. Yeah, it's huge. Totally. Yep. And so uh, practical. What is the thing in your life that needs to change? What's the job you need to quit? Because that's the thing is your biology is leading you back to your biological code. Something that you're doing is out of alignment with your biological code. Mm-hmm. And so we have to figure out what is that thing? Is it that you you know, are going to a soul sucking job every day. (laughs) And is that, 
you know? And so is that the, the reason that you have profound self-devaluation because you know that your skills, your gifts, your talents aren't being utilized here, that you're just a cog in a wheel, that you've got no value to this place that you're going, yet you go every single day. Like, have we explored you know, practically, what does it look like to not do that anymore, to do something different? You know, what's preventing you? What is the self-devaluation, the fear of failure, keeping you at this job that you hate, that's sucking your soul, that's causing your indigestible morsel conflict? Like, we got to look at all that stuff and have to see what's preventing you from making that change. What kind of fears do you have? And so that's where it starts you know, with one practical, oh, this is the this is the, the conflict theme. But then we have to dig into what does that mean for you? Where did this start for you? Where did you get this programming? Have you ever questioned this programming? You know, uh, when you have unexamined beliefs and ideas, you can perpetuate. So let's say you had a self-devaluation when you were, you know, four years old and you generalized that to mean, you know, I'm no good. I'm no, I'm no good at sports or you don't get chosen for the, you know, kickball. You're last to be chosen. And so you, you make that mean nobody wants me. I, nobody wants me on their team. And so for the you know duration of your life, you're seeing life through the lens of nobody wants me on their team. And so I just see life through that lens. And so someone has to come along and show you, Hey, Remember that thing that happened? You generalized and you made it mean that nobody ever wants you. And so that has been influencing every experience you've ever had. And so we got to figure out, let's take those lenses off. Let's see through a, a, a new perspective about yourself. Look at that story, examine it, deconstruct it. So we look at the practical thing, that's going to be the most direct, but then, you know, if, if a practical resolution either can't happen or you've done it and it's still not doing the trick, then we have to go into, you know, this transcendent place of like, how can I see this differently? How can I be different? You know, because a conflict is resolved when it can't happen again. Either just practically it can't happen again because, you know, I've moved out of my parents' house. Therefore, they can't ever oppress me in the way that they did before. So that's a practical change. You can't ever be in that situation again. Um, or I am so different that I couldn't experience being picked last through the lens of self-devaluation. I just couldn't. And so that's where we have to go into that that internal shifting. I was usually picked first or second for kickball, so I don't have that issue, but I have plenty of other issues. Uh, deal with, that's for sure. On that, I did have a final question for, for Dr. Melissa Sell. So Erasmus and I recently have started playing backgammon together online. And he's currently in the midst of the most intense losing streak imaginable. He's coming to work completely depressed, less energetic than oh. the rest of it. So I'm just curious, like, what conflicts can I expect going forward, or or what healings once I once I uh, retake the lead and um, get get on my own. But straight? what if that doesn't even happen? How are you going to resolve well, hopefully, this? Hopefully, I'm not too impacted by it. I'm not having difficulty going to sleep. Uh, I'm not. Um, I don't have racing thoughts all the time. So I don't. I wouldn't say that I'm conflict active. But another right. person, Sophie, Sophie's been texting me otherwise. <laughs> Well, there we go. This could be a psychological conflict, not a biological one. Because remember, the biological conflict has to be highly acute and isolating, dramatic, caught off guard. You know, and even if two of those things were present, if he's talking to Sophie about it, he's not isolated in it. He's, you know, has her support. So he, mm -hmm. it's not activating his biology. So this could just be a psychological thing. Um, or it could be, you know, a lot of different things. Yeah. Well, I think I think what we've talked before about uh, on other episodes and even this one is like, you know, what's your state during it? You know, are, do you have like cold hand and feet? Are you having difficulty eating? Um, are you having a difficult time 
sleeping? Are your thoughts racing over and over again about the thing, about the phone call, about the text, about the lost job, about uh, what your mom said, about whatever the case may be? And I think that's like the the way to kind of self-diagnose, uh, sh shall I say, in terms of like, oh, I'm, in, I'm conflict active right now. You know, and again, self-awareness, this is where it comes down to, to know, wow, I'm in a state, I'm having a different experience. What's going on with me? Why is this happening? What just happened? Um, so self-knowledge is, is the, is the, is what it's about. What it's about. Yep. And yeah. And that's where a person who knows this, they know, oh, I'm in conflict. Like you said, I, I can pay attention to these subtle cues of the obsessive thinking, the cold hands, and I address it. You know, I talk to someone about it. I journal about it. I get the conflict out of the darkness and into the light and I go to work on it, you know, cause if we ignore these things and that's what people are just so busy suppressing and ignoring and distracting that they don't ever get to their stuff. <clears throat> and if you don't get to your stuff, then it just lingers. And then we have these long-term adaptations, um, which create the problem. Cause that's the thing is short adaptations are, you know, we're having them all the time and yeah. it's not a problem. And that's the thing about cancer too, is it has to be long lasting. It goes on for a couple of months. It's activated and it's, and it's growing. Um, it's not a short thing. So you don't have to be, you know, paranoid that, oh gosh. And some people will do that. Some people will kind of, their anxiety pattern will, will latch onto the, the GNM principles and say, oh my God, this means that Every time I'm worried, I'm creating cancer. And then they panic about their panic and they freak out about freaking out. And so you just have to develop the awareness to see that's not useful and that yeah. it's sustained long-term conflicts. And again, even if it does develop, it is an adaptation. Your body has a plan for it. We do want to just catch these things early, develop the skills to downgrade, to, to be aware of it and to live without fear because fear is the number one fuel. Fear and panic is the thing that fuels um, adaptations in the body because it's a survival thing. And if I'm feeling threatened for my survival, you better know that your body's going to turn on different programs in order to help you to survive, which is why you have to realize that unless all fears other than like present danger fears are false fears, they're fears of the ego mind. They are fears, they're echoes, they're ideas. And it's like, I'm actually safe right now. And so the more that you can establish that I'm actually safe right now, and this thing that is like gnawing on me and like eating my mind away, it's an idea. And when you realize that most of our conflicts are just made out of unaddressed ideas that we're not looking at, you can say, oh, this, this, I can work with this. I can shift this. I can change this. You know, and yes, you might have to change your life. You might have to, you know, uh, find find a community. You might have to create a tribe of of people who are aligned with your values in order to really, you know, feel that sense of community and support that is so helpful. Um, but mostly, like within yourself as an individual, do you have your own back? Are you there for yourself? Are you encouraging you? And that is so profound and so important. Um, you know, and that's the work that I do. I know that's the work that you guys do is helping people to, to develop that mindset, to develop that inner strength and that inner awareness to, to know what's going on with me and to fill my own cup and not expect the outside world to take, to take care of me and to fix my problems, you know, and, and seeing that self-responsibility, not as a burden, not as I'm to blame, it's all on me, but it's all on me. I got this, you know, it's all coming from me. And, and that's that, that beautiful switch from, you know, blame to responsibility and seeing responsibility as really just the best thing. Cause it's your ability to respond to your life and to create your life. And that it's, it's on you 
um, which is a good thing because you can rely on you because you are in control of you. Yeah. Mic drop right there. Dr. Melissa Sell, you're absolutely incredible. The information you share on this show every single time blows our minds. We get so many messages um, about your episodes. They're some of our most popular. And just thank you so much again for the work you're doing and you know, being a huge ambassador for this such incredible, powerful knowledge um, that I think ultimately will change the world, obviously, once it, once it gets out there. Um, so yeah, thank you. Can you please share with our audience, how can they connect deeper with, with, with you? What do you got going on at the moment? Yeah, for sure. Thank you, guys. I just appreciate you and your consistency in getting this out um, and talking about it. Because for me, I was I was kind of offended that I had never heard of it. And it was 2017 when I first came across it. And I was like, what is why have I never heard of this? This was, you know, I went through, um, you know, a whole professional program all about the body. I was in around all these holistic people. And it's like, why is no one talking about this? And so I was offended that there are people out here not ma- not shouting it from the rooftops. And so that's um, you know why I, I speak on this because I just see it as so important. And um, as far as how you can connect with me, um, my YouTube channel, Dr. Melissa Sell, I have a, a Monday class that I've been doing for the last month. It's called the Language of Adaptation. And so this is the language of adaptation. It's how can I understand how my body is adapting? You know, and that's you, instead of even using the word cancer anymore. It's like tissue adaptation, breast adaptation, lung adaptation, muscle adapt, like the body is adapting. And when you use and understand the word adaptation, you understand the language of adaptation, you can see it through that lens and it just takes that charge away. It takes that fear away. There's no longer a disease. It's just adaptation. It's how my body is adapting to my experience. And so we want to understand And in the class, we get into the details of the biology. So we understand what's happening in the biology, um, how we're adapting, and then, you know, how can we change how we're experiencing this adaptation, bring the fear out of it? Because understanding is what eliminates the fear. When you understand it for what it is, you're not afraid of it. You know, there still might be intense symptoms, there still might be pain, but no one ever died from pain. So remember, there, there are, when you get that, when you see how your body functions, um, that's what brings the peace. And, you know, the, the goal is for everyone to have someone within their family, within their community that knows this work. Because not everyone wants to learn about the mesoderm and the endoderm and the ectoderm, but we all need someone that we can go to, to bring us that, you know, that wise person in the community. Um, And so, you know, I'm trying to spread this word to those wise people who are in tune with this and want to be that person for their family, for their community, for their group. Yeah. And I find also when people come into the, come into this information, they kind of, you know, they, they carry that flag, you know, they want, they want to share it with everyone. They want to try um, point everyone back to their resolutions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely how I roll. Once I learned about this for the first time in like 2023, you, I was just like the same thing. How did I not come across this in like 15 plus years in the alternative health world? Someone who loves to go down the rabbit holes, never even heard of it once. And so the minute I came across it, it just like, again, I felt it deep in my bones. It resonated on, on, on such a, on such a level of, of truth and knowing it makes so much sense. So again, thank you. You obviously know how I feel about you. I love you to death. Uh, and you're, you're just incredible. And thank you for, for your presence and, and for your passion and, and your perseverance and, and sharing this knowledge that obviously lights you up. we got another straight G in the house right here. Very straight so G's. You- Three straight G's up in here. She's she's doing what lights her up and it's pretty beautiful and amazing. So thank you for giving your gifts to the world. And um, yeah, 
Everyone yeah. follow her on Instagram. Go to her Telegram page. Yeah, uh, we'll drop in all her links. Yeah, all we'll her links are going in the show notes, in the brief, um, wherever you're listening or watching this episode. So check Melissa Sell out. And also, just want to remind everyone, Dr. Melissa Sell is our guest expert inside our private membership community, um, Friends of the Truth, later this month as well. This is GNM month. We're doing our own introduction to GNM live teaching, and then Melissa is going to come in. Um, so it's going to be freaking amazing for sure. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you all. Take care. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with